Dr. Kuntz, why is war good? War is good when it suppresses evil. It is generally, however, not good, not only because war so often promotes evil rather than suppressing it, but because of all the other evils attendant upon war, it's helpers that come with it. So war can be good in a very limited sense. Pacifism is not a good option for that reason, but it is an understandable option for people that pay attention to all the attendant evils, even in a war prosecuted for a good purpose. What is a good purpose? A good purpose would be the defense of the innocent, the defense of one's own. If you look at the history of just war, as the Christian church has been discussing it for thousands of years, you'll find that it involves the the rescue of the innocent or the helpless. Think of Abram's war that he wages in Genesis 14 to recover Lot and his family and possessions. Those are those are the most obviously good instances of war where it is defensive or something that recovers what was lost unjustly. That is <laughs> very rarely the sole cause uh, for war. And because of that murkiness, you really have recourse to in you know whether soldiers too can be saved. Luther is going to assuage the soldier's conscience by referring to his need to follow the authorities that are authorizing the war because the individual person cannot be sure in most cases and can have very serious doubts in many cases that the war that he has to be engaged in because he's a professional soldier or because he was conscripted or whatever is actually a good war. So what is war? War is, well, famously, politics by other means. But war is violence prosecuted for some kind of end, generally by some sort of recognized government entity. So it can be a state in the modern world, roughly the past 500 years. It could be a king. It could be a baron. It could be lots of things. Someone that would appear to be a robber that will eventually turn into a king all kinds of different entities, but generally have some sort of governmental function, you know, a a clan going to war in a Gaelic country or a group of men under a headman going to war in a Germanic country in the Dark Ages and Middle Ages. So it's going to be violence prosecuted in a an ongoing way for the attainment of some kind of end by a group. It's not individual violence and it's not, you know, just robbery in the sense of I'm seeking just to plunder. In war, something political is always intended as well. You're not just trying to take something. You're you're also trying to affect the way that life works, either for you or for your opponent or both. That sounds pretty close to uh, what I've been reading in the book Warfighting, the official dogma of the Marine Corps of the USA, where mm-hmm. if, I, if I am remembering correctly, war is defined as the imposition of will by violence on an opposing political entity of yeah. some kind. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really a battle of will 
not so much like who has the greatest will wins, but more there is a disagreement about what should be, and then uh, there is violence to decide what will be. Right. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Precisely. Yeah. And that, that definition I, I like for its looseness. Also, you just have to keep the adjective political loose in yes, that definition. Absolutely. Because, yeah, because you don't want to fall into some sort of trap where war is only between what we recognize today as nation states. A, a better word if, might be public. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Whatever is going to get you to the sense that it is affecting political realities, but but those are not always solely national realities. So if anyone here is a reader of Mad Christian Mondays, my newsletter that goes out every Monday, you can get more at madpxm.com. It's free. Sign up. Uh, I have not shied away from talking about both mass formation psychosis and that as an agenda or an element of so-called fifth generation warfare. And one of the key components of fifth generation warfare as part of warfare theory is that it is no longer a matter of nation versus nation, state versus state, but that in a fifth generation war, all people are combatants and they are combatants in a matter of information. Uh, and we've talked about this before. It's easier yeah. to convert you through fear or uh, agreement uh, than to come at you with guns. And uh, so again, fifth generation warfare being something that uh, has really just dispersed the idea that war is about nation states. That's kind of the, the key idea there. And as we then are going to to go backwards here in time uh, and talk about the, the so-called Cold War, um, that definitely was, at least from from the history books that I got in grade school, all about nation states, all about uh, the distinctions between the good guys and the bad guys in big countries who also have Olympic teams. Um, right. And in <laughs> yeah, some ways, Olympic the, teams uh, being, yeah, where the Cold the War most was important. fought in the minds of the people, I think, yeah, uh, right. for, for a lot of things. So um, although I also have come to believe that the, the fifth generation warfare has been going on uh, quite a bit longer than, than we realize, um, and you can track uh, the infiltration of communist ideology into the American school system and, and call that part of it, uh, frankly, I think, you know, Marcusa especially uh, being a major name in that. But, but anyway, um, from there, uh, you know, if you want to respond to that or we can just jump yeah. into Cold War as a concept. Well, I think I think that you have to respond to it because William Lynn's idea that you have these different generations is is premised on a framework of as as so much theory is of the last thirty or forty years that the Cold War represents a, a certain kind of normalcy, and if you define the Cold War roughly as the end of the Second World War to the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, and then the creation. And if you do remember the Olympics in 1992, there were teams competing under CIS, Commonwealth of Independent States, which was a sort of halfway house for post-Soviet republics, including Russia and Ukraine. That that time period of of basically 45 to 91 is its own kind of normalcy and involves nation-state conflict with the world organized into three blocks with the first world. Now, this is this is weird for people because these have taken on solely material significances, but first world was what was otherwise called the free world. That is the world led by America. 
The second world, a term people don't use anymore, was the Soviet world or the communist aligned world led, of course, by the Soviet Union. And the third world were what were called the non-aligned states like India. And that way of thinking as if nation states were normal, I think you're right to say that was never exactly how this worked. Because even before the Second World War, in things that we've mentioned, you had, for example, pretty fervent and in in certain immigrant communities, particularly successful, communist and anarchist agitation in the United States in the 20s and 30s. So the idea that somehow the the strains and the stresses exhibited both between the United States and the Soviet Union, but also as dangers, domestic dangers, about which we'll speak more in a couple of weeks, that those were somehow absent before 1945. And then these are all standalone and, and no one is attacking you on a psychological level, you know, during the Cold War, I think is is absurd. It it runs contrary. Also, generally, I think, and and you know more about this than I do, generally, I think also to people's psychological experiences of the Cold War. It wasn't an experience purely of nation state conflict, which could then be safely, you know, corralled into when the hockey teams play each other in the Olympics. It was also a sense that perhaps this returning of nuclear destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, it was also a sense that the world was extremely fragile because it could be assaulted almost at any moment, something that during the Second World War really is only true for Americans on the West Coast, is now true for all Americans during the Cold War. So those the idea that that somehow this assault on the individual psyche was not a part of warfare prior to whatever time is, I don't think, sustainable because it seems to have always been right. a part of warfare when it was possible. You know, propaganda yeah. plays a huge part in it. Um, what, what seems to be new is the ability of the enemy to target your population with you not being able to necessarily even know that that's happening, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so you right. you find posters about how the Nazis are apes and we need to go kill them, um, but it, you you didn't really have a way for the Nazis to stream radio into your house here in America without the U.S. being able to do anything about it, and and that's what shifted here. And this is where so you can run this all the way through the Trump election and Russian interference, and yeah, they're probably interfering, but in what way and. <laughs> You know, maybe not the way everyone thinks they are. And, and implying and, we're not. Yeah, you know, right, right. It's, yeah. uh, you know, CCP has their, you know, their their police force set up in New York City and, and all this stuff going on. You know, that that is a new thing. Uh, and I think Fifth Generation Warfare is trying yeah. to get at that yeah. concept. Um, but yeah, to, to see the overlap and, and that psychological control would be the only way you would get a group of people to exercise their political force into violence for the sake of a will or a direction or, or something like that. So, right. yeah. And, and yeah, memories of the cold war. I mean, it was a scary time. Um, although at the same time, the eighties was, it was morning in America too. Right. So, um, cable, cable was getting going and there were a lot of good shows on and, and those shows were about <laughs> you know, tear drinking realities, like how we should, uh, love down syndrome people and, and disarmament, uh, have a disarmament agreements with, with Russia. If only we would do it, then they would do it too. And, um, and you know, uh, the only way to win yeah. is not to play, you know, which is, a uh, uh, it was a war games, the movie, I think, uh, Matthew, Matthew Broderick. Um, so like there was a lot of, uh, propaganda targeting American thought 
yeah. to shove toward peace, which I don't, I don't know if I have a problem with that. It's just, it was kind of a weird thing as I think back on it. Like if we really were in a situation where we had these, these global enemies, this kind of uh rose classes pie and grows glasses pie in the sky kumbaya approach to to everything well it worked i mean then the wall fell down right and so yeah. like it all kind of rolled together into this beautiful americana captain america was right after all thing um and then and then uh you know uh the the internet took off and you had a financial market collapse in the late 90s based upon internet stuff and that rolled forward into the housing bubble so like I don't know. It, it it merges together as memories will do. Yeah, uh, sure. But but I definitely remember like you know the scorpion singing "Wind of Change" and this like this great moment that oh at last we're safe, we're safe. The wall fell down. Um, it won't be like it was. Uh, and in some part that um, that dream, that ideology, that religion, whatever it is, I mean, that stuck with me up until 2020 as an assumption. And, and 2020 was yeah. very much a part of like, Oh wait, <laughs> that was a, that was a good lie. That was a good lie. Whew. Uh, so yeah. The reason that we're talking about cold war this week and, and next and, and likely into a third week to cover the domestic front is I think precisely because it's not perhaps normal in the sense of you know conflict between giant nation states is normal or, or or must occur in the way that it occurred in the 20th century but because the way that life functions under it or did function under it is the basis for the way that life functions for us now and that recognizing that you were being propagandized by various entities usually in the United States being ostensibly nonprofits from both Hollywood production companies to the ad council that that was happening in the 1980s and that was happening in the 1950s the recognition of that is one of the i think most important distinctions that we want to draw which is that cold war let's say lowercase c lowercase w is the natural state of our state at this point hot war is not and the the distinction is is simple on its face which is that open violence what we started out by defining as war just strictly speaking no adjectives attached that war is not actually being prosecuted by one of those states upon the other state so it's you're not in a state of war with the soviet union you're not in a state of war with the people's republic of china that doesn't mean that you're not in a cold war and it's it's this category of cold war that is really kind of novel but will i think help explain for people what is actually going on amongst us because what i'm maintaining is that the cold war capital c capital w sure with the soviet union yes that ended cold war is the ongoing permanent state of emergency that in 2020 was obviously extended to COVID, but potentially exists in everything from the Selective Service Act to the existence of the Defense Department or the Pentagon or lots of other things that we're going to discuss in the next couple of weeks. So yes, we're not in a hot war. Maybe we can discuss whether we're going to get into a hot war, but we're not in a hot war, but we are, I think, permanently 
in a Cold War, not necessarily the Cold War, obviously with a no longer extant Soviet Union. So let's talk about whether or not we're going to get into a hot war as opposed to this proxy war that we're in, which is hot. Right. Um, and we're just not officially there, um, although we're right on the border, it would seem. And uh, we got all sorts of toys over there. So uh, and we have citizens, I believe, uh, retired military that are, are fighting uh, generally for Ukraine, although I believe there are some on the other side. Um, before we do that, though, I mean, I think let's let's yeah. go in that direction. But I want to sure. ask just your opinion, because um, this has been the way that the alt mainstream news has been trending, uh, not, not the mainstream, but the alt mainstream, which is that uh, Putin bit off too much and this is backfiring, uh, which is sort of a newer alt uh, mainstream media approach. It had been a little yeah. more both directions and or, you know, there was even some voice, if you listen to to BAP, uh, you know, that, that this was actually going to really just prove something in terms of Putin's strength. Um, but it seems to be and I don't, I don't know who to trust, so that's why I'm asking you, uh, th <laughs> right. th that, uh, yeah. uh, that Putin is is uh, losing, even within his own ranks here, uh, some credibility. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, the, the loss of face within his own ranks is a little hard to track because of the, the severe language barrier for any English speaker. The closest that I've got to something approximating a fairly pro-Russian, but but within and about Russia, fairly neutral tracking of both the political events and the military events has been Russians with attitude. Mm -hmm. And they, they'll release things for free. I'm not a subscriber, but they, they release plenty of stuff for free that helps clarify where things are and what's going on and everything. And some of the changes, especially within the command structure of the Russian army and the relationships of various generals too the Putin administration regime, whatever you want to call it. I, it, the analogy that helped clarify for me what I'm going to give as, as an answer to these things is that you have a similar kind of confusion among generals and about generals, as well as about the commander in chief's capacity to wage the war that they've committed themselves to, along with difficulties mobilizing conscripts. And that would be the the North and the American Civil War. And the reason that I would use that as an analogy for the Russians is because they are vastly technologically superior to their relatively very small, numerically small, technologically inferior opponents. And that doesn't mean that, I mean, there are points in the American Civil War, like in late 1862, where the South is winning on all fronts. And what happens at that point is that media favorable to that side, and we see this happening with Ukraine, maybe about two weeks ago as we record this. They're not they're not all quite there because there have been there have been and remain so many enormous power outages as a result of Russian missile strikes that it's a little hard to maintain. But there was a point roughly two two weeks ago now, in October, early October, where the media was our, our media was acting like this was lights out for the Russians and they're out of here and they're gone. And the problem there is that winter is just coming on. And, you know, even in this uh, globally warmed world, winter <laughs> is, is, uh, is, is going to come to the Eurasian step and the Russians are militarily and technologically 
superior in numbers and capacities and experience if you look at the wars that they fought since the fall of the Soviet Union, largely in their border areas or in their you know restive provinces. And I think eventually they they will win apart from something that I think is the wild card here, which is the presence of nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and then the use of nuclear weapons. And then as we saw also with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the attribution of attacks. So that is all completely up in the air in the sense that the Russians are warning fervently about how the Ukrainians are trying to construct a dirty bomb and uh, NATO as well as Ukraine is insisting that Russia is going to use tactical nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Of course, nobody wants to do what the Americans did in the Second World War and use them and then be honest that you use them. Because especially in a post-World War II world order, you are dealing with the reality that certain things are seen to be off limits. And that is part of the reason they've never been deployed in combat. That's an interesting thing. Is it, is it uh, Dr. Strangelove? Is that why it's off limits is, is cause it's just going to be bad for us too. I mean, what, and, and I don't, I don't, yeah. I'm not going to advocate nuclear bombs right now. So I'm doing, but, but from a, uh, if I, if I put myself in a, I don't care, I'm a radical, I care more about winning position and I yeah. have them. Right. I don't yeah. know what would stop that guy. Right. And I'm not sure Putin's that guy. Um, I think uh, I can't think of Ukraine's actor. Um, what's his name? But uh, um, but but Zelensky. He might, since yeah. he's an actor, um, he might be that guy. Actually, I, yeah. I'm more worried about about. Of course, I there's my bias, I suppose. But um, uh, yeah, well, Zelensky is unlike Putin in that Putin is is a pure product of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. His Tremendous fluency in German as a result of long years spent as a KGB agent in in East Germany. And he is fairly old and remembers these things and thinks in ways that came to be native to the Cold War. We'll talk about the American incarnation of that next week. But just in a nutshell, that there there is a native caution built into Cold Warriors on both the American and the Soviet sides by virtue of the sense that this could be completely destructive. That's why you have this category of tactical nuclear weapons, that you're not you're not deploying these things strategically, that is, as a kind of ultimate game changer. You you would theoretically deploy them with relatively small loads in order to achieve certain you know, immediate battlefield objectives. That's that's why you would use them. I I do not think that that is really not that it's not in the cards, but that it is probably a a card they would be extremely reluctant to play on the Russian side because it would play into the hands of their enemies so easily. Yeah, right. Within the realms of information warfare, right. And it is it is not, I think, at all militarily necessary. They've they've already captured large swaths of the Russian speaking portion of Ukraine without using anything resembling nuclear weaponry. It really would not be necessary to do so. So th- there is very small advantage in deploying tactical nukes for the Russians. There is very great 
propaganda advantage in deploying tactical nuclear weapons, perhaps even as a false flag on the part of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, I'm not saying they're going to do it. I don't know enough about Zelensky to know that. I'm saying they're the only ones who, if you think about this, a couple moves ahead, like you're playing chess, could benefit in any way right. from the deployment of nuclear right. weapons. Well, when you when you can't win, you right. use the radical solution, right? Right. Yeah. 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 I want to come back to this, um, but I want to bring another hot war possibility in because there's a little island called Taiwan. Um, and Xi Jinping just threw a coup, which is crazy. Like you're in charge of everything and, and you, you have a coup on the guy who like supports you but used to be in charge. And uh, that, that shocked <laughs> the world a little bit for a moment and a half. Um, so uh, it, they're running drills. Uh, China CCP is running drills in the Strait of Taiwan. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, blah, blah, blah. That's uh, old news. But there, there continues to be this uh, – I think it was today I saw uh, U.S., Japan, South Korea um, saying North Korea don't pursue nuclear weapons. So that's also sitting right there. Um, so n- another side of the the Asian continent with some similar potential hot war things, uh, you know, that, that China's right. policy is Taiwan is ours and we will have it. It's only a matter of time. Um, is that any more or less in the cards right now? Or, or is that just sort of uh, distraction while we change our computer chip model of economy? <laughs> well, I mean, it is it is true that that we are we are onshoring things that before COVID were were almost exclusively sourced from Taiwan or mainland China. I I think that one thing that a a permanent state of cold war induces in us is the sense that it is everything is our job at least potentially. So logically, the distinction between committing troops and weaponry and everything to Ukraine, that's that's really the same thing as committing troops and weaponry and everything to Taiwan. So the difficulty here is that if Cold War originally existed as a way of projecting American power in distinction to Soviet power for reasons that were both ideological and, let's say, purely political in the sense of Realpolitik, then what you're dealing with now is the same responsibility, you know, lying on America to potentially police anything that could come up as a kind of injustice or especially as a power move by somebody that is a threat to us in a diplomatic or geopolitical sense. And that's that's really Russia and China. Yeah. There's there's no one else who even approaches that. So I think, unfortunately, the logical response on the basis of current advocacy of Ukraine and the presence of Ukrainian flags on, you know, outside the homes, some of the homes in my neighborhood is there's really no difference between that and Taiwan, even though objectively a a historic pre-Cold War American response to these things was it is not our business. Yeah, whether the Chinese control Taiwan or the Russians control Ukraine. So, but that's, it's almost impossible to say that within any kind of electable or even broadcast worthy American environment to say that something is not our business. Isolationism is bad for everybody, don't you know that? Yeah, isolationism. Right. Uh, Yeah. Isolationism is is going to be consistently brought up. We've referenced on the show before 
the overwhelming percentage of Americans that didn't want to enter either world war. But it's not only that people's minds generally change quickly when war begins, but also that their amnesia becomes severe after the war is over. So for okay, for example, almost nobody remembers that there was a Mexican war. Maybe the Mexicans do, right? But most Americans don't remember that there was a Mexican war. And they certainly won't know how wildly unpopular it was even among the troops who were prosecuting that war. I mean, Ulysses S. Grant, who fought in that war, thought it was a total fraud. We should not have been there. We were just bullying the Mexicans because we could militarily in order to get more space and stuff. And so what's going to happen is that not only do wars get forgotten, but also that the reasons that people don't want to be in them also become forgotten, particularly when they are successful. The the exception to this that you can see in American memory from the Cold War is the Vietnam War, which is not remembered as successful, even if in many tactical ways it was highly successful. We just didn't have the will to prosecute it in a way to resolve the problem permanently, right? So I think what we're looking at is I am afraid that not only the body politic, but our our leadership, such as it is of both parties, has no capacity to beforehand realize what it will mean for us to be committed mm. to Ukraine, let alone also to Taiwan. And that we wouldn't really be able to learn that until after those wars were over. It it seems very difficult for people to learn, begin to learn from history, from history's numerous examples, before an imminent war begins that they shouldn't let it begin. There's just a force that seems to push governments and peoples along toward war. It's a strange kind of optimism, really, uh, mm -hmm. that, that, that leads in that direction. And, yeah, and right. I guess that does kind of uh, get to something else then. Um, one of the things that has been, uh, again, I, this isn't coming from Russians with Attitude. This is coming from uh, a conglomerate of, of alt-right sources, meaning alt-right media, not far alt-right, blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, that one of the things we've seen out of the Russian-Ukraine conflict is that Russia isn't what we thought Russia was. Uh, Russia is definitely superior to Ukraine technologically. They definitely have, like everything you said earlier about the, sure. the long game is in their favor. Um, but they're not, they're not the U.S. Navy SEALs. Right. Like, or at least that that's what you know, we thought maybe they were and, and they're not. Now, what I'm really beginning to wonder, though, is are we and, <laughs> and how long will it take? You know, do we yeah. have to have a war in which we jump in the way that Russia jumped into Ukraine to find out, oh, we're not what we think we are. We've watched too many of our own movies here. Right. The, the Bourne effect that it, it wasn't real enough. Yeah. Uh, and so um, your, your thoughts on that on the paper eagle effectively. My thoughts on the paper eagle are that, okay, let's just bracket out the stuff that people are, I think, generally aware of. It's it's at the level of of being Facebook memes that you know we're we're requiring our troops to get vaccinated and and learn how to talk nicely to transsexuals, and the Chinese are not doing that. And and look at, you know, I mean, this 
I mean, if if anything is is influenced, this this could easily have been sort of memed by the Russians or the Chinese. But these military recruitment commercials from Russia, China, and then the United States, respectively, and the United States is like a one of those sort of like human Teletubby Silicon Valley cartoon things where uh, the recruit has like two moms and is brown and is happy to be in a jobs program, you know, and the the Russians are like a man running and yelling and the Chinese are like a man running and yelling. And so, okay, that's just bracket that out. Like that, that's, that's on a level of obviousness, but not current actuality that yes, eventually, obviously if, if we're running the military as a jobs program for various like sexual deviants we're we're sunk yes obviously and and we're probably headed there i don't think that's the current state of our trigger pullers exactly because again somewhat like vietnam in a war that people are quickly forgetting no one is claiming precisely that our troops tactically lost to the taliban like man for man you know encounter for encounter that's not the claim for example of the book the Afghanistan papers. The claim there is that we were rudderless, we were insane, we were dumping money into social reconstruction programs, trying to give people democracy and feminism and who knows what else that didn't want any of it. And that so so that much like Vietnam, we ended up in a quagmire of our own making. But it wasn't claimed either there or really by anywhere that I have seen that the Taliban did anything except endure those 20 years. They weren't necessarily winning battle for battle, right? They were maybe getting better at certain things, but they weren't going to win in some kind of ultimate military, purely military sense. So I think we are we are a paper eagle, but we are not a paper eagle because of obvious, like measurable lack of fitness in every kind of combat unit we might send out. I do think that that exists. I think that that's probably increasingly creeping in as it was, especially after Vietnam in the 1970s, when basically every branch of service was in total disarray in the United States. But I think that the more immediate issue is that we will threaten to do many things, but we will not then finally do them except through deployment of certain special forces. That is, That seems generally to be what we are comfortable doing at this point. We will do all kinds of shady things. We will fund lots of things endlessly, but we will finally only deploy into a combat situation select numbers of special forces. I mean, we're doing that all over Africa as we record this. So we are trying to project force, but the idea that we're trying to project force in a country in order to stop something else from happening, that would be that would be a new paradigm, at least, if that did happen, because we really haven't done that in a new way since 2003, which at this point was a little while ago. It's quite a while ago, really. It is quite uh, a while ago, yeah. 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 So let's come back to uh, war as ultimately state of permanent emergency and justification for the ongoing controls changes yeah, uh, that the right. elite would like to see enforced on the population what 
where we pick up really with a story that we've been telling that we told technologically about the Second World War is with a redeployment of the technological capacities of the Third Reich into both the major victor combatants in the Second World War. So most Americans are familiar with Operation Paperclip. There is an exact analog to it in the Soviet Union to get German scientists particularly into space research, aircraft research, rocketry, all kinds of things. And they are shipped to various purpose-built places, often in Siberia, for those for those very reasons. That that parallel leaves you with really two major blocks in the world. And immediately after the Second World War's end in Europe, which is in May of 1945, we begin to realize that we we are not really friends. Now, some of this has to do with a realization that we didn't have, partly because one of our major State Department officials in the Second World War, Harry Dexter White, is actually revealed by the former communist turned conservative Christian, really, Whitaker Chambers, to have been one of the people that Chambers was working most diligently when he was working as a Communist Party operative within the United States government in the 1930s and 1940s. So we have actual obvious communists, particularly in the State Department, not solely there, but particularly there, that are operating in a way friendly to the Soviet Union, not only in the 30s, but also after the outbreak of the war, such that we are treating the Soviets as equals, partners in the war. It's it's really, therefore, only after the end of combat in Europe, and then the Soviets do invade Japanese territory. But obviously, we we bring that portion of the war to the end, to an end in, in the summer of 1945. Then we look around, and we look around a, a country like Germany, or lots of other places in the world, but particularly centered in Germany. And we think, what is this supposed to be? because it's divided up into four occupational zones, British, American, French, and Russian. And everything that the Russians have occupied in Central and Eastern Europe is in 1945, not particularly communist. No one knows what it's going to be. And at that point, I I mean, I guess if we had actually been on the same team the whole time, if we were working for the same objectives or, or believed that man's happiness could be constituted in all of the same ways, that we would have had no problem partitioning Europe. But in fact, there is vehement debate, both within the United States and among nations, about what the shape of Europe should be. How should it be divided up? What parties should be outlawed or not outlawed? That is what political opinions are beyond the pale or not. And what begins to set in comes to be called a Cold War, meaning that we are at odds with the Soviets, especially as over the next four years from 45 to 49, they bring to power, sometimes often ruthlessly, a crushing opposition, such that there are, as it were, small civil wars in many of these countries. As they do that, we're we're like, oh, well, I guess this is not this is not what we signed up for, or they are not our allies. And so it's in 1948 
that Winston Churchill is going to announce in a speech at Westminster College in Missouri that an iron curtain is descending over Europe. And he's saying that in order to, exp- I mean, it, if this makes any sense, he's saying that about his allies. I mean, he he used to sit and you know have conferences about how to divide up the world with Joe Stalin. And now Joe Stalin's, you know, predominance in Russia's what would be called in a more polite time sphere of influence is a problem. So the Cold War here is going to express the antagonism between these regimes that really anybody could have seen coming. But for the purposes of the Second World War, we were willing to overlook. So uh, I don't know if I can if I can tie this to the conversation about the Pentagon. Um, uh, my my favorite thing about the Pentagon is that it is made from a shape that is uh, geometrically kind of useless if you want to build anything. It's, <laughs> it's one of the most unstable structures you could possibly make, and yet here it is at the center of the world right now. But that's probably not where you exactly wanted to go. Well, I mean, the the way to tie it in, is, I mean, the Pentagon predates the Iron Curtain speech that Churchill makes. And and it it its planning begins during wartime, but of course it's not it's not carried out. There's there's a, there is a lot of significance to the Pentagon. What it does is this. So we'll start with Churchill and then go into the Pentagon. Is that if you say an iron curtain is descending, the question is, well, are you? I mean, are you supposed to stop it? Like, what are you supposed to do about that? Why? I mean, if you're going to announce something as a geopolitical reality, you know, Vladimir Putin is a tyrant then that invites action from people that are paying attention to you. If you're not going to do anything about that, then then you have to wonder why. So if you're going to do something without committing troops to some sort of endless ground war in you know, Ukraine, Poland, Romania, then what you're prosecuting is going to come to be called a cold war. The best court history of this, I mean just kind of orthodox, no revisionist takes, just a narrative of certain facts gets you, covers many of the proxy wars in Latin America and Africa. You know, so if you need to brush up on your, you know, Angolan border war knowledge, this is, or South African border war knowledge or Angolan liberation knowledge, this is your book, is by John Lewis Gaddis. It's just called The Cold War, A History. And what he identifies are especially these, the, this prevalence of tension without resolution, but the sense that the tension has to be there because we are confronting some sort of evil in some way akin to what we told ourselves we were doing in the Second World War, fighting the Japanese and the Germans. But if you're going to do that, you can't always have a a self-conscious war footing. So what happens after the Second World War with the building of the Pentagon, the National Security Act of 1947, the changing of the name of the department responsible for most of these things from the Department of War to the Department of Defense, the inauguration of a permanent foreign intelligence agency in the CIA, lots of matters like this, as well as the beginning of something we've talked quite a bit about, which is the beginning of the National Security Agency. All of those things mean that because we're in a war, it's cold, but it is a war. Because we're in a war, we need to be on something like permanent war footing 
without the commitment of American boys to potentially die on foreign soil all of the time. So what that is going to look like is that we are going to demobilize, you know, all, you know, our our conscripted troops from the Second World War, but we're going to we're going to keep the draft present enough that by 1950 we're drafting people again to go to Korea in that case. But we're going to keep you know that that possibility open and now there's going to be the selective service act and you will register if you want to receive government benefits of any kind including at this point now in our time student loans if you're a man whatever that means <laughs> for the time being but if you're a man you still have to do that but all of that is going to be permanent so instead of just taking everything away as we did honestly try to do with almost everything that we built up to prosecute the First World War, after the Second World War, it just transmutes into something else. And that something else can then, over the course of time, become bigger in many cases than its equivalent was in the Second World War. So the CIA is bigger than the Office of Strategic Services. The NSA is bigger than anything that the Army Signal Corps had going in the Second World War, and on and on and on. So what you're going to do with the building of the Pentagon is that you are symbolizing by the Pentagon's sheer existence, the fact that America will now be at war permanently. The nature of that war will vary, but America will be at war permanently, but that war will not be called war. It will be called defense. It seems like um, I'm kind of just thinking on how after the the meat grinding reality of World War One, that a, a Cold War is a natural evolution of of warfare. I mean, you kind of said it yourself, mm-hmm. but that the elites realize that we can't just throw the boys at the guns, have them run at each other forever. But we do have to um deal with the perceived threat, the perceived enemy in a, a global theater now, uh, right. in which the ability to strike uh, is not, it's not easy, but it's not as hard as it was in, in you know, for, for Russia to strike the US in, in circa 200 AD, I mean, that that wasn't really easy, right? That was hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and now it's, it's, it's a little easier with uh, submarines and aircraft carrier and all this kind of stuff. And so right. recognizing that that's always there, um, you know, is it? I guess what I'm asking a little bit is, you know, can you blame them? I, I don't like it. I don't think it's good. Uh, I don't think it's the way that a uh, an arrangement of confederated states that are there to protect the freedoms of the population necessarily can maintain its freedoms. Uh, but you know, it seems that having a military state is inevitably going to have a military state. But uh, it. it can you can you blame the elites of the time for thinking this is what needed to be done? Were they malicious? I guess is what I'm asking. Is a cell with malicious intent? I, I, I don't think they were malicious in the sense that our elites often are today, and that that is a distinction that, with the exception of, for example, Harry Dexter White, with the exception of people that were either suspected or known then or are certainly known now to have been malicious, to have been utterly duplicitous, to have been communist. I, I don't think that there was malice exactly. Uh, 
I think that there was a conception of what America was for that involved necessarily having to change America entirely to achieve. And the sense that 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 change, that transmutation, that alteration beyond recognition would be wise or good or helpful, that that was their hubris. I don't I don't think it was their malice. So the for for example, if you take the nuclear weapons testing that we were we were still doing, particularly in the desert southwest and then in the just various Pacific islands, some of which we obliterated through nuclear weapons testing during the 40s, 50s, and early 1960s, that those those tests were were not there in order to completely change the psychic condition of American children. Now, maybe they did <laughs> and maybe they didn't, but the idea that so much could be destroyed at once is is bound to change you somehow. Technology, I don't, which is kind of our particular thing we have used to, to win wars. Technology has not been neutral. It has often been evil, but I don't think that it necessarily inheres in the technology or even in the geopolitical situation. It inheres in the blindness that men have. I mean, they were <laughs> the people overseeing those tests are a combination of of academics with their narrow specialties and military officers. Academics with narrow specialties, we didn't have really in the United States before the 20th century. Military officers, we consciously limited throughout the 19th century, as well as to some extent between the world wars, because the, the in, innate going back to the founding thinking was that the presence of a military officer class is always nascently tyrannical. That people who control standing arms, standing weapons of warfare, will themselves do whatever they want finally because the existence of the weaponry and of the capacities has its own force on a person especially a person who can command them so none of these things i think are especially malicious i i i think sometimes when people think about history they they think as if they are thoroughgoing arminians or not even Arminians, but something sub-Arminian where human will somehow determines everything. And so what you what you would do in that idea of what humanity is, is you would try to spot in any given historical instance, you know, Bikini Atoll 1954, or, you know, Soviet expansion into Eastern Europe, you know, 1946. You would have to spot the motivations of every single human being involved, or at least the leadership involved. And a lot of people think that's what history is. Instead, what I find most often is a pattern particular to a topic, a problem, wartime, military officers, whatever it is, that repeats apart from the ascribed or described motivations or characteristics of the people involved. And so I, I don't think that we wanted to destroy the world or put ourselves in a constant state of fear or eventually make the federal government metastasize like a cancer 
or anything like that. I think we wanted to protect our own people and generally actually oppose communism, which even the CIA did rather ineffectually for a very long time. <laughs> but none of that really matters. Like human intentions matter a lot less than human beings seem to believe, certainly at the time. I really like the idea that you know, the good news is the CIA has been incompetent for a long time. So now that they're <laughs> against us, they may not be so good. Um, uh, since you mentioned yeah. Kenya Atoll, yeah. and uh, since you, you, you once shared with me a tweet thread that I, I did read the entire thing uh, on uh, the nuclear testing there and some of the personalities involved, I mean, I really got to ask, did they accidentally rip a wormhole in the sky and let an arch demon into the existence of the current state of things? And is the sacred heart of Jesus our only solution? Because that was the, the premise of the tweet. The tweet that storm. was the premise of the thread. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it really was yeah. fascinating. Uh, yeah. I, I, but I, I want to hear your, your thoughts on it for that reason. Yeah. The guy, if I can remember his, I mean, who knows if Twitter even allows him to exist anymore. His name is like Charles Wing Wexcool. It's a strange name, but he is, he's some kind of Catholic, Catholic poster. And so he wants to, he wants to rededicate ourselves to the sacred heart of Jesus. There are probably it's, worse ideas. Uh, it's just like a little bit above in our discord chat. It's uh, at C the letter uh, wing, the word capital U small E X and then Cull, K-U-L-L, -L, like Kroll, the movie, but without the R. Um, so, yeah, um, that, that's his Twitter handle. So Yeah, they, they can find that. And his, his thinking is that the use of technology, especially of destructive technology, is not a spiritually neutral thing. And I'm, I want to stress the word use there, that what is happening is when people are employing incredible technologies, especially with the rapidity of discovery and adv advances in power, explosive power, destructive power that we experience as a result of the Second World War, that we are interacting with spiritual realities that are not under our control and that these things are now beginning to control us and wing x school or however you say that he believes that what changed in america the obvious social decline the destruction of so much that was obvious not even cherished but simply obvious to people when those nuclear tests were going on can be tracked to extremely destructive tests in the south pacific in the 1950s and that after those points, great evils have come upon us. So that's his idea. You can see it as far-fetched if you want. I don't think that it's really finally debatable that the use of technologies that are wildly destructive and wildly beyond our capacities to contain the impact or you know, finally the use of, as we worry about dirty bombs, I, I really don't think you can see the discovery of those things as some kind of boon in human history or a good or that these things come from uh, um, protecting angels. Yeah. So he he's putting things in very literal theological terms, literal psycho-spiritual terms, and you can disagree with or or affirm his literality. That's fine. 
But the idea that somehow we have done all of these things and we as a nation, among other things, are the only ones to have unleashed nuclear total burning upon a civilian population, that those things can go on without you know, without a problem. Blood guilt is real. It's yeah, kind of the, right. the, the short yeah. end of that. Yeah, well, and I, it's it's very interesting to me that Grant, whose memoirs I'm reading right now, that's why I'm referring to him, and they're fascinating. They're extremely well written. They're fascinating. There are moments in the Mexican War where you know six Union and Confederate generals are all lieutenants in like the same regiment working together. <laughs> it's kind of wild. That's like movie esque, right there. Like, yeah, it is yeah, movie esque. All these. Young, later to be famous guys in the same yes. platoon. Yeah. yeah, I mean the guy he both he the guy from whom he received the surrender at Vicksburg and the guy from whom he received the surrender at Appomattox. He he fights right alongside both those guys huh. in Mexico. But what is interesting is that he says that the Southern Rebellion is largely a consequence of the Mexican War. He's got other reasons for that, but what he says right after that is nations like individuals are punished for their transgressions. That basic idea does not exist in American political theology in the 20th century, really at all. No. 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 Blowback is not even a thing for, and that's a a secular concept. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Blowback is a secular concept. And Ron Paul, I mean, got scorched by all, from all sides, as is his custom for suggesting that anything to do with September 11th could have anything to do with our conduct in the Middle East. And so that that's simply a secular observation of human behavior and the behavior of nations when they're under pressure. Grant's assertion in, in high style, because his, one of his overarching ideas is that destiny that is God's disposing of events matters vastly more than any human being understands or can expect is that, God's disposing upon nations that that commit atrocities or commit great evils is that they will be punished for those evils. Because that's absent, it's really hard for anyone to discuss the Cold War in any way other than good guy versus bad guy, rather than nation experiencing God's like blessing and judgment versus nation experiencing God's blessing and judgment. So it's it's easier for me to understand, however, what has also occurred in the United States that has been in decline in various ways compared to the Soviet Union, which collapsed politically but suffered similar declines of, I mean, abortion rates skyrocketed and, you know, the life expectancy plummeted and all sorts of things that we have experienced things very similar to those just at a different pace and in a different way. But that... God is working out his ways among men with us as well, rather than our thinking that the Cold War or a permanent state of emergency is something that, you know, is just sort of a, you know, maybe a political evil, but a theologically neutral fact, or that a permanent state of emergency is somehow natural for nations, because we ourselves and increasingly our parents and grandparents have never known anything else. So what what I'm hoping to provide as well next week is just a perspective on the Cold War that doesn't involve seeing it as 
a unique finite period between 1945 and 1991 when we were the good guys and the Soviets were the bad guys and we fought it out across the, you know, across the world. And finally, the miracle on ice occurred and the Americans won. All right. So, uh, well, the uh, I think I'm going to save that question for next time. You're listening to Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.